1: Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button.
0: Elizabeth Banks and James Marsden star in Walk of Shame, an outrageous comedy about a night out gone wrong. Watch it on demand now the same day it hits theaters. Rage premieres on demand May 9th, starring Nicolas Cage as a reformed criminal who enlists the help of his old crew when the Russian mob kidnaps his daughter.
1: The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on Cable. The Art House is now in your house.
0: From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore.
1: And I'm Matt Singer. On the show this week, Allison and I take a long, bittersweet, cigarette punctuated look at our podcast relationship and wonder if we can ever escape the tide of history as we discuss Asghar Farhadi's The Past.
0: Yes, rest in peace, IFC <laughs> News podcast. Later in the show, we'll bring you Q Shots, where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme. In honor of The Past, which is about a man who returns to the country in which he used to live to finalize his divorce with his ex-wife so she can marry someone new, we were going to dedicate this podcast to the underappreciated cinematic genre of paperwork. Mm. However, after three attempts to record an episode resulted in us and everyone in the area falling asleep, we decided it'd be better and safer for everyone to devote the episode to films about marriage instead. But first up is opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies On Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand on cable. Matt, what are our picks this week?
1: Uh, Can we... Can't we just talk more about the scene from Blues Brothers where they try to bring the form all the way up the building and the cops are <laughs> chasing them and Steven Spielberg plays the guy and he stands. Oh, what a great scene.
0: It's true. That actually is a great it's scene. It's a very paperwork.
1: exciting scene about paperwork. And yeah. how dare you imply that paperwork is boring, Allison. I, it's
0: ridiculous. To be on behalf
1: idea. of accountants everywhere, I'm offended. I apologize. All right. Well, anyway, yeah, we do have some excellent options for some movies on VOD this week. A couple of titles I'm really looking forward to seeing and uh, one I have seen. Uh, The first one is one of those titles I'm anticipating. It's called The Double, and it's going to be available on VOD starting on May 9th. It's directed by Richard Ayoade, and it's based on the novel The Double by Dostoevsky. And it is about a guy, played by Jesse Eisenberg, who finds out he has an exact double, played by Jesse Eisenberg. And the cast also includes Mia Wasikowska, Wallace Shawn, and Noah Taylor, The film premiered at the 2013 Toronto International Film Festival alongside another movie about evil doubles, Enemy, which I've already seen and liked. Have you seen either of these movies, I've Allison? I've seen the
0: double, and I really, really it. Oh,
1: you liked did? It. You really yes. liked it. Is I, there anything really you want to say about it, throw out there right I, now?
0: Only that I would say it falls maybe somewhere between, it, it's got a touch of a racer head to it and mm. a touch of Brazil to Ooh. it. So it's in that realm of film.
1: How Brazil, just in terms of like, it, it's set in like an office mostly, and it's a very dysfunctional yeah. office. And, and
0: in general, it's set in an office where inside the office is maybe low-key... Brazil and outside the office is a racerhead.
1: Oh boy! <laughs> so maybe sounds... not a
0: great place to live, but a great place to watch. Right, it looks great on screen.
1: Interesting. Yeah. It, but, and did you see Enemy? Or you haven't seen I Enemy yet? Have not yet? seen Enemy yet. Together, so. we have each seen one half of the diptych. But I'm looking <laughs> forward to uh, checking this part out because I've heard not just from Allison but from a lot of people that the double is really good as well. And Enemy, I didn't think was a perfect film, but very interesting. Have you spoken to the new employee, mm-hmm.
0: James? yeah sure a minute
1: but did you notice anything strange about him i mean did he remind you of anyone
0: What did you have in mind
1: what do I be i'll just have a coke a coke and you scrambled eggs and serve breakfast in the evening what well, do you still have eggs here yeah and do you have a frying pan yeah Then give me the damn food simon
0: how come you don't have a girlfriend I don't know. There's someone I've been thinking about. I have all these things that I want
1: to say to her. I know what it feels like to be lost and lonely and invisible. You have to go after what you want. You really think she's looking at me? Yeah, yeah. All right, now look your lips. Yeah. What? Show the tongue, but be careful not to look like a lizard. Go. I attract so many weirdos. Yeah, I'm looking forward to catching up with this half this this evil double of the other evil double movie um and then maybe throwing in muppet's most wanted to uh, complete the evil double trifecta i suppose <laughs> since kermit has a has an evil double in that one but this is the double and it'll be available on VOD starting on May 9th our next pick is already available on VOD it's called the sacrament this is the latest film from director Ty West, who made *The House of the Devil* and *The Innkeepers*. This one is based on the infamous Jonestown massacre of 1978. That's where the uh, the famous phrase, you know, "Drink the Kool-Aid, don't drink the Kool-Aid," the variations thereof. That's where it comes from. This is a found footage horror movie, and it's it's sort of disguised as a a like a journalistic report from a bunch of guys who work for Vice magazine. And the crew from Vice in this film is played by Kentucker, Audley, A.J. Bowen, and Joe Swanberg. And they all go together to this religious commune to visit the sister of one of the characters who lives at this commune. She's played by Amy Simons from Upstream Color, who's also a filmmaker in her own right. A lot of directors uh, acting in this movie. And while they're there filming and visiting this woman, bad things start to happen, Uh, and I don't think you need to say much more about that. If you know the incident, you have a vague sense of where the movie is going to be going. Uh, This one played at uh, Fantastic Fest last fall. I didn't get a chance to see it there, but I'm a fan of Ty West. And looking forward to seeing this one. I, I, I like found footage movies, not all of them, but I'm certainly not opposed to them. So it's an interesting combination of subject and form and director for me, and uh, I like that cast as well. Have you seen this
0: one, Alison? I have not, but I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah,
1: I'm looking forward to checking it out as well. And uh, now we can because it is available on VOD right now. That's The Sacrament. And finally, last but not least, uh, also available now on VOD, or by the time you hear this, it should be available. May 6th is the date it becomes available on VOD. It's Veronica Mars, the long-awaited film based on the short-lived cult TV series of the same name. This is about uh, the—well, it was—the show was about the high school detective played by Kirsten Bell. This is now ten years later. It's the ten-year high school reunion for the character— and uh, she's reluctantly forced to return to her hometown of Neptune, California that she's left behind a few years earlier and drawn back into her old gig of playing detective because one of her friends is accused of a crime and she is the only one who can prove he is innocent. Are you a fan of Veronica Mars the show?
0: I- Liked it. I haven't seen all of it. I saw the first season. I really enjoyed it. And then just kind of, as sometimes happens... Lost track of it. Lost track, yes. Did you
1: watch the movie yet? I did
0: not. I kind of felt like I needed to, you know... Catch up. Catch up a bit. Or at least refresh myself. Right. And
1: I had never watched the show. And I, out of curiosity, just because I thought it was interesting how... You know, this was a very sort of famous uh, uh, Kickstarter. They Kickstarted this movie, even though the show is owned by Warner Brothers. And they, they... they kickstarted and crowdfunded something like five point seven million dollars for this movie and I think then Warner Brothers kicked in some money as well and so I was sort of just interested in you know this show that kind of was a cult hit never really you know found a full audience but the fans they stayed faithful and they they kept hope alive and when the chance came to fun to movie they really came out and so i was just sort of interested and i had heard a lot of stuff about well it's really for the fans it is kind of fan servicey and you need to know what the show was all about to go see it so i kind of watched it out of curiosity and the way i sort of put it was i kind of enjoyed not enjoying it like i didn't really get a lot of it because it really is something you can just tell watching it that it's you really need to know the characters in a lot of cases and um even though the acting is really good, the writing is snappy and 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 Kristen Bell is fantastic and you can tell you can tell that there's a lot of richness there, like in jokes and characters, and like there's like that high school reunion scene, a lot of it is sort of i think just an excuse to kind of shoehorn a lot of the characters from the show back in there at least for a scene or two and all that went over my head, but I kind of like that the movie exists, you know for fans of the show, I think this is great, and I think it's really cool that. You know, something like this could be made 10 years later. And and it's not that it's bad. It's just, it's just really, I just realized that it's not really for me. And I think if you were a fan of the show, I, I would think that you really would enjoy it. So certainly for Veronica Mars fans, if you haven't watched it yet, you should check it out on VOD starting on May 6th.
0: Love and marriage, love and marriage Go together like a horse and carriage This I tell you, brother You can't have one without the other Love and marriage, love and marriage It's an institute you can't disparage Ask the local gentry And they will say it's elementary. Try, try.
1: All right, our topic on cue shots on this episode marriage movies, movies about marriage. And this is a little similar to something we've done before. Way back on Film Spotting SVU number nine, we did an episode that was tied to Take This Waltz, the Sarah Polly movie. That was our main review. So, tied to that, we did our, I think it was a top five. I think that was a, a, a film spotting original recipe and film spotting SVU co it was a co-joint so we did our top five infidelity movies in that case but we figured um, just marriage movies is enough different because not every marriage movie is about infidelity that we could uh, uh, we could do that on this topic and it's certainly appropriate for the past which is very much about marriage and marriages and all that kind of stuff don't, doesn't seem like we have a ton to discuss generally before we begin,
0: yeah, Allison. I feel like it's there's not enough in common with marriage movies to, mm. to generalize. Although I would like to give, uh, you know, we're talking about movies in this case, but I, I it did occur to me as we were ta- uh, looking around at different possible, you know, uh, movies to include here, that there is a TV show that has a pretty great marriage that I, I liked a lot, which is Married Friday. with Children. Friday Night Lights. Oh. Yes. <laughs> marriage Married with
1: children, children has a pretty good marriage in it too, though. <laughs> I think you'll admit.
0: Uh, totally. Yeah. Uh, it's just like, you know, like everyone's parents, really, who can't relate Very to that. Very powerful. Um, but Friday Night Lights, the TV show, has a has a really great marriage in yes. it. Yes. And it is streaming on Netflix. So did want to give a shout out to that. But yeah, I don't know that I have any general thoughts on, on marriage and movies. <laughs> I guess the
1: only thing I would say is just the idea that, you know... The romantic comedy, the romantic drama, what have you, is so much about the courtship and so much about all the stuff that leads up to the marriage, you know, even sometimes culminates with a wedding. But very rarely, you know, there's a lot more wedding movies than there are marriage movies, movies that really focus on, like, the day-to-day life because that's kind of boring, you know? Like, And I think that's where the movies that – certainly the movies that I picked go – and a lot of marriage movies go is which is that they're about boredom or about couples that have grown bored. Uh you know, I think that sometimes boring in this light can actually be a positive thing. Pleasantly boring, pleasantly comfortable, but that's not really what these movies go for. It's more like boring like I I need to get out. I'm being stifled. I you know, I'm unhappy that sort of thing. But yeah, it's just interesting because like um there's you know that that's so many movies are about love and romance but so few are about marriage
0: yeah and that's actually in that the film tv divide i do wonder if it's a little better suited to Mm. tv just because tv is about like returning to people again and again the
1: ongoing struggle right so lends itself more to episodic television right
0: than to just check in with people for the runtime of a movie right it's, it's yeah, because usually then it's about trouble in a marriage. Yes.
1: It's a great point and because a lot of times, it, like when it's about like when TV tries to do the opposite, when they try to do the like the, you know, will they, won't they, the romantic thing, a lot of times they string it on as long as they can. And then once they get together on whatever it is, moonlighting or friends or something, it's like the the show craters or right. the, the ratings go down or they have to find another thing to make it about because once they've. Cross that threshold that it's like, you know, once the the box, Pandora's box is open, you can't put it back in. So, yeah, that's an interesting point about film versus television. Yeah, film tends to do the, the young love thing a little bit better. And then and television does have a I mean, because it's got to keep going. It's got to keep going. You can't just
0: be like, and then they lived happily ever after.
1: And, you know, I don't know of how realistic Married with Children was, but that was (laughs) a show about marriage that went on for years and years and years. And the fact that they were kind of miserable was sort of the, you know, was one of the jokes. And uh, but the fact, you know, and sort of the longer that show went, it was almost like the more poignant and horrifying the (laughs) relationship got, you know, because. Uh, It just became that much more depressing and and humorous as a result.
0: Yeah, a lot of sitcoms actually about people who are married or about like families do sometimes have that weird angle of the almost like purgatorial, Mm. you know, just because you're like uh, always stuck in that same place. Mm. Always never nothing ever changes because it's a sitcom. Nothing's supposed to change. Right,
1: right. (laughs) All right. Well, but we're not recommending any sitcoms on this episode I guess we're gonna get we're gonna talk about some movies here
0: so do you have your first pick Do you want to begin I do and it's a it's a really sweet depiction of of wedded bliss Rosemary's (laughs) Baby which is currently streaming (laughs) on Netflix Uh, it's Roman Polanski's 1968 film based on Ira Levin's novel of the same name soon to be seen in TV miniseries form on NBC and I have to say those promos are not looking very promising to me
1: when does that air I haven't I think it's starting next week oh Oh, that soon. Yes, and, Zoe and Saldana. Zoe Saldana, and right, from Avatar?
0: Who, uh, yes, I forget who the guy is.
1: Okay, well, I can and, look that up while you're talking. Okay,
0: but yes. Uh, but
1: you're recommending the original movie. I'm
0: recommending the original. I have not seen any of the miniseries yet, but I, I'm not Now's really... Now's a good time to go check up, it out,
1: because so. you have yes. be thinking about the show and maybe, maybe. not enjoying it, but... <laughs>
0: Um, but of course, Mia Farrow plays the Rosemary of the title, a young housewife who moves with her actor husband Guy, played by John Cassavetes, into an old New York apartment building, where they're befriended by the creepy neighbors played by Mini, uh, played by Ruth Gordon and Sidney Blackmer. Um, and what I really love about the depiction of the marriage in this is the way it slowly sours, alongside you know, Rosemary's pregnancy, her possibly satanic pregnancy, or maybe just her own paranoia and suspicion, uh, you know, that it really gives this sense of a of, of feeling like you no longer know the person you're married to or that they're slowly slipping away from you. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it's interesting in that they're so together in the beginning, the two of them, they have this very like, you know, they move into the new apartment and they're sitting on the empty floor and then they make love. And that kind of contrasts with maybe the most famous scene in the movie in which uh, they have dinner together. And he kind of harangues her into eating the chocolate mousse that the neighbors have brought by. And and then she has this kind of vision of, you know, this demon being raped by a demon and I think maybe the most beyond the fact that it's such a disturbing scene and it's so like memorably shot is that in the morning the explanation that her husband gives her is that he had sex with her while she was unconscious Mm. because they're trying to conceive a baby right which is like such a disturbing normal explanation to give Mm -hmm. you know and I think that just like the subtle creepiness of the way that uh, you know that, that John Cassavetes brings to this kind of as, as Rosemary herself points out, kind of self-obsessed actor, all actors are a little self-obsessed, she, mm-hmm. you know, she says, uh, that he just kind of becomes more and more sinister. Uh, you know, he literally kind of sold her off to to potentially better his career. And I think that there's, the way the movie tracks that, that kind of Faustian bar- bargain and just like how he starts to seem more and more sinister is fantastic. What time is it? It's, uh, 10 after nine. What time did I go to sleep?
1: You didn't go to sleep.
0: You passed out. Uh, from now on, you get cocktails or wine, not cocktails and wine, huh? The dreams I have. This movie is, of course, like a masterpiece of paranoia and slow dread, and the feeling that you are surrounded by people who are apparently friendly that you can't trust. And the fact that the person who's closest to her is also like that. And the fact that it's worked in into their slightly unbalanced relationship in that she's a housewife and she's home alone while he's off, you know, auditioning for things and kind of supporting them uh, is, I think it's just so well done and so creepy and great. And uh, it's Rosemary's Baby. I shouldn't need to sell Rosemary's Baby to you. But, you know, if you haven't revisited it in a while, uh, that aspect, I think, is one that It's easy to overlook in the overall kind of arc of the story, but it's so nicely done. So Rosemary's Baby, currently streaming on Netflix.
1: All right. And the, the, the guy, you know, the husband character in the new show is played by Patrick J. Adams, who I believe is one of the stars of Suits.
0: Yes. Ah, Okay. And
1: his IMDb page also lists a film upcoming called Car Dogs. I'm sure that that sounds excellent. I'm sure that will be equally disturbing as Rosemary's (laughs) Baby. Car dogs. Are they dogs that turn into cars? Are they cars that are decaled to look like dogs? Like the dumb and dumber like van that had looked like a a dog? I
0: should say uh, the Rosemary's Baby, the miniseries, does is directed by a film director, from what I remember. It's isn't it Agnesia Holland?
1: Yes, it is.
0: So there you go. There you so go. maybe I shouldn't be so quick.
1: You're so quick to, to poo-poo, Allison.
0: Oh my goodness, I apologize. And you're such a huge
1: fan of suits. You've seen all forty-four episodes. I've
0: seen some episodes. And
1: you <laughs> and you you already pre-bought your tickets to Car Dogs. Uh, I don't know why you're such so, such a. They're in my
0: email right now. Yeah, you're
1: right. don't don't just dismiss it. I
0: apologize to everyone involved. It
1: could be good. It's probably not going to be as good as the movie, though. I think that's. I, I
0: suspect it won't. That would be
1: surprising. <laughs> if all it right, all right.
0: What's your pick, Matt? All right, well, for my picks, I decided
1: to kind of use this as an excuse to catch up with some quote-unquote classics, some masterpieces of world cinema that I had never seen because there's a couple of them that are about this topic. So the first one is called – well, actually, both of them have multiple titles. The first one was originally known as Love in the Afternoon and released in the United States as Chloe in the Afternoon. Mm. You can find it as Love in the Afternoon on Hulu+. Plus from 1972, and it's directed by Eric Romare. This is the last of his six moral tales, and it's about a guy named Frederick who is happily married with a wife and a child, and he's got another baby on the way, and seemingly very contented in his life, but all of a sudden, everything is kind of thrown into question after this woman who's a, not even a, one of his ex-girlfriends. It's actually an ex-girlfriend of a friend who he didn't even like when they met in the past. Uh, wanders back into his life. Her name is Chloe, and she begins to come visit him at his office regularly in the afternoons, or he starts to then visit her, leave his office to go see her. And very soon, this faithful, loyal husband, who's never really considered cheating before, although he has indulged in daydreams and fantasies about women, and we see some of them, we see this one daydream that he has that's mildly disturbing— that uh, involves the use of this like magic amulet where he can control women by this amulet he 's wearing we don 't really see anything horrifying with it that 's left to our imagination, but he just sort of engages women on the street while wearing it and kind of uh, talks them into going with him on dates and things like that pourquoi dans la masse des beautés possible ai-je été sensible à sa beauté c 'est ce que je ne sais plus très bien maintenant quand je vois une femme je n 'arrive plus aussi nettement qu 'autrefois. À la classez d'emblée dans le clan des élus ou celui des réprouvés. Non seulement je n'ai pas la même sûreté de goût, mais je ne vois plus sur quel critère j'appuyais mon jugement. En quoi consistait ce quelque chose que toute femme, pour m'attirer, devait posséder immanquablement et que je décelais au premier coup d'œil? All of a sudden, this guy, who uh, you know, presents himself as this faithful, loyal husband, is suddenly on the verge of infidelity. And I had never seen this movie before, although I had seen its unlikely English language remake, which is called I Think I Love My Wife, which was written and directed by and also starring Chris Rock. Uh, so, yes, Chris Rock uh, remade an Eric Romare film. Apparently he's a big Eric Romare fan, according to uh, what I've read. And uh, Chris Rock's movie's not bad. I didn't love it, but it's not terrible. Uh, but this is much, much better. Um, the Just the footage of France in the early 1970s, the way that Romare films – You know, just like kind of glimpsing people the way that Frederick looks at people on the train or in his commute. You know, part of what he loves about his life is that even though he is faithful and happily married, you know, he kind of indulges in these fantasies and kind of enjoys glimpsing people on the street. And I just love the way that Romare films all that stuff. And, you know, it's narrated by the Frederick character these scenes and there's something very poetic about what he's talking about, the way he phrases things, but also very honest, very revealing, you know, that he's kind of, I don't know, just talking about the male psyche and and male neuroses and male desires and in ways that I, I think – I don't know. I think he's getting at something pretty honest and kind of almost uncomfortably honest at times, and he has some interesting sections just in this early prologue portion with the, with the voiceover when he says things like – this is why I love the city. People come into view and then vanish. You don't see them grow old. What makes the streets of Paris so fascinating is the constant yet fleeting presence of women whom I'm almost certain never to see again. And as we're hearing this, we're seeing all these images of of women and walking through the the streets, and it's just fascinating. There's a little bit of you know sexuality and nudity in the movie, but not very much. And what really struck me was kind of how – uh, you know, like the less is moreness of this movie. Like, it's a very sexy movie without, you know, there's like a little bit of nudity and almost no sex, but it's a very sexy movie. And like the sexual tension is palpable. And just every time that this character goes to see Chloe or she comes to see him and just a little peck on the cheek or touching her face or... Like, the set, like really the most incredible and sexiest shot in the movie is just this close-up of his hand as he's touching her hip while she's wearing, like, this skin-tight outfit or something. But it just, like, the camera kind of lingers on it in this close-up. And you just kind of feel the tension in the air. And uh, just the way that, with very little of that, it really kind of builds to this, like, is this guy going to you know, betray his, his very sweet, very lovely, very, very pretty, very charming wife. Is he going to, you know, is he going to betray her and what's going to happen? And there's all this tension. And then the last couple of scenes are so powerful um, when he gets, you know, the, when it sort of builds to this, basically the, the, the moment of decision, whether or not he's going to do it and then what happens after that are really kind of devastating. Uh, so this one uh, definitely worth the uh, masterpiece status the classic status, worth watching. It's Love in the Afternoon, aka Chloe in the Afternoon, uh, and actually the title, depending on which title it is, I think actually kind of changes how you could <laughs> interpret the movie. Very, very different depending on the title, but nonetheless, uh, very, very good. Whatever it's called, and that's available for streaming on Hulu Plus.
0: All right, my next pick is from a filmmaker who has done a, a more recent, very memorable dark film about marriage uh, called Antichrist which is currently streaming on Netflix if you want. This is not Antichrist. It is Breaking the Waves which is available for rent on Amazon and iTunes from Lars von Trier of course. It's his 1996 film and one that got him a lot of attention. It was the first film of his I saw and uh, though I have to say I might lean I lean more towards the Lars von Trier of the kind of recent more outrageous films involving some scary women including antichrist and melancholia uh the you know this is of this kind of earlier group of films including Dancer in the dark that have these characters who are essentially martyred Uh, and in this case the martyr is emily watson who plays bess mcneil a, a kind of an innocent and kind of childlike Scottish woman who marries an oil rig worker named Jan, who is played by Stellan Skarsgård and they have this very passionate, loving relationship until Bess prays for Jan to come back early from his stint on the oil rig where, you know, he leaves for weeks and weeks at a time and he does because he is injured and returns paralyzed, um, you know, and no longer able, like, impotent and also, like, barely able to function. And uh, what I, I I kind of like about the increasingly disturbing direction this film takes is that it's two characters who think they're doing the best for one another in this terrible situation in that uh, Jan feels horrible for having, as he sees it, like stuck her, trapped her with him when he, you know, is confined to bed and that his health is terrible and she has to take care of him. And in order to free her, as he sees it, he asks her to go out and take a lover, to go out and have sex with other men and then come back and tell him about it. She you know loves him and will do anything for him and she's not looking to to take more lovers she's not feeling deprived of anything but because she believes he needs this this is what he tells her for you know so that she'll really go out and do it she does do it and uh, in the middle of her very conservative society she uh, is ostracized and things go worse and worse for her but she thinks she's doing this thing that's going to keep Jan alive This is unlike you, Bess. Out there, there are people who need Jan and his work. What about them? They don't matter. Nothing else matters. I just want Jan home again. I pray to you. Oh, please, won't you send him home? there's a potential sadism to this scenario that and Lars von Trier is not one to skimp on treating his characters sadistically but that it's kind of it's softened in this film by the fact that this this potentially kind of cruel thing that Jan is asking her to do i think he's doing entirely because he thinks it's for her own benefit that he's kind of rather than consign her to this kind of life without any physical con- you know physical conduct any any sex that he will allow her to have it and will kind of insist that she have it and then he doesn't kind of realize what he's doing to her and uh, this film has a great great leading role by emily watson it was really her breakout and she's tremendous in this and it, it, the kind of dogma-ish it wasn't officially dogma but like dogma-ish style of the film really makes its its difficult tale seem both closer and and also less it, there's no stylized quality to it you know it it, it really grounds it, it and and makes something that has this quality of a fable into something more real so it's a it's a really great film by Lars von Trier, and I think it's probably his most acclaimed. And if you're only maybe more familiar with his more recent, more overtly provocative, ridonculous films, <laughs> ridonculous films uh, this one may, you know come as a pleasant surprise, you know? Maybe depending on how you feel about this. <laughs> pleasant
1: is not necessarily the word I would right, use. Right, but you know, but... like
0: I mean this is a film that a little Nymphomaniac different. maniac. It's different. Yeah. It's different. Is going to divide people. Yes, it's very this different. This film was widely acclaimed. This is true. You know, this is true. Uh, as much as as rough things happen in it. It's not a pleasant ride. <laughs> um, but it is a really good film. Breaking the Waves, available for rent on Amazon and iTunes and a really kind of sad look at a marriage that starts off with a lot of love. Mm.
1: Okay, my last pick. It's also available for streaming on Hulu Plus, but I actually would probably recommend people rent this movie on iTunes or Amazon, because for some reason that I can't understand, the version that's on Hulu Plus is actually in Italian. It's an Italian director, but the actors are speaking in English, and so... The version that I have on Blu-ray in my house is actually in English, and I'm pretty sure that those rentable versions are in English, and the Criterion Blu-ray doesn't include an Italian version at all. So I'm not really sure why (laughs) the version that's on Hulu Plus is dubbed into Italian, and you can watch it that way. I actually watched it this way, and then I went back and compared the English version, and you definitely want to watch the English version, but, I mean, it's still good in in uh in Italian as well. So if you have Hulu and that's the way you want to watch it, go go ahead, but just be aware you're getting a Italian dubbed version for some reason. The film is either Journey to Italy or Voyage to Italy. Usually it's called Journey to Italy, but also but it's known on Hulu as Voyage to Italy where it's dubbed. I don't I don't understand these <laughs> multiple titles this is very confusing. This is the third of Roberto Rossellini's features with actress and also at that point by that point his wife ingrid bergman um this one is about a married couple played by bergman and the british actor george sanders and they're on a trip to naples to sell this beautiful uh vi- villa that they've inherited from an uncle and they should be enjoying their trip i mean they're in the this incredible villa they've got a there's like a staff attending to them they're in this gorgeous place they're getting tours and they're being whined and dined and it's it seems very lovely but they seem incredibly unhappy and mostly they're fighting and arguing and not talking to each other and all this time that they're spending together on this trip driving all the way down there and now you know having dinners together it's putting more and more strain on what's clearly a pretty troubled marriage and eventually after kind of an argument they spend a little bit of time apart in Italy and Sanders goes to like parties and is kind of wandering around trying to meet people while Ingrid Bergman's character is going to like kind of the local sites, like she goes to the art museum and looks at art, and she goes to uh, some volcanoes or like this like volcanic pit where there's smoke constantly billowing up, and she's considering all of these ancient ruins and works of art. And I read a few different essays after I finished the movie, you know, because it's a it is a Criterion movie on Blu-ray that just came out recently in a box set with several other. Bergman and Rossellini films, and there were a couple of interesting interpretations that I I read. Richard Brody has an essay in that book that comes with the the box set that's kind of looking at each of the movies as uh as as they relate to the private lives or the you know of Bergman and Rossellini and how they had you know very famously. She, like, kind of came over to Italy to make movies with him. They had an affair, they had a child. It was a huge publicity scandal, and they were both married at the time, I believe. And so, it was a whole, it was a whole Magilla, as they say. And there's some interesting stuff there, and he talks about that, and he kind of looks at Journey to Italy as because her character, as we see them, they're, they're these clearly they're kind of well off, these British. This couple, you know, she's wearing this very expensive looking fur and they're living in this villa and he was kind of reading it as like a movie about Ingrid Bergman, this actress from Hollywood who had been in, you know, was a huge movie star and the trappings of fame and yada, yada, yada kind of getting back in touch with art essentially because she goes to museums and she's looking at classical sculptures and I thought that was a very interesting reading but it wasn't really one that I had kind of picked up on myself what I was really kind of fascinated by in the film was what I saw as kind of this contemplation of permanence and impermanence as it relates to marriage you know that Marriage is supposedly the sacred vow and that when you do it, it's supposed to be forever, but it so rarely is. And even if you are married for your entire lifetime, that is such an infinitesimally small amount of time compared to this volcano over here that has been erupting for thousands of years and is still smoking right now. And it's, you know, compared to these works of art that were made thousands of years ago and are still around here today and – there's this really incredible sequence towards the end of the film, and this is not a spoiler uh, at all, but the the couple, the married couple, are invited to come look at this kind of ruin that's being excavated um, from, I think, from Mount Vesuvius. They've, they've, like, dug up people who have been – they were essentially buried alive in lava, and they've, like, found the remains, and they're uncovering people who died together, and they're seemingly a couple, a, a man and a wife, or, you know, and and – This image of this couple frozen in eternity, like in this lava, is kind of really more than the Bergman character can stand to look at. And it's a really, really incredible scene and and raises all these fascinating issues that uh, the movie is about. I wasn't crazy about the ending. And overall, I think I I enjoyed uh, Love in the Afternoon a little more than this one. The ending to me felt a little bit rushed and kind of – I don't want to spoil it, but it felt a little bit of a betrayal to me of one of the two characters – I wasn't crazy about it, but everything that came before it I thought was really, really fascinating. The film, you know, reading about it was very influential to the French New Wave. It was not a hit. It was not a successful film. Um, Rossellini was known as, you know, one of the founders of Italian neorealism, but this film is not neorealist, and that was, like, considered a betrayal at the time. But uh, some of the French critics who became directors really loved it and and were uh, influenced by it. Look, you can begin to see something. What is it? See. Looks like a leg. Yes. There's an arm. There are two more
0: legs. Well. Must be a group.
1: they found the remains of nine people. There's the head. You can see the skull with the plastic clinging to it. remarkably well preserved. Two people just as they were at the moment they died. Un uomo e una donna. A man and a woman. I had never seen it and I enjoyed it, even despite that ending that I think is a little eh, it's a little iffy, but uh really incredible and and Ingrid Bergman is really, really fantastic in this movie and uh some of those scenes are just devastating. That scene with the lava is incredible. So, voyage or journey to Italy, available for rent on iTunes and Amazon. And if you don't mind watching the actors speak dubbed into Italian, you can also watch it streaming on Hulu Plus. Ahmad, laisse tomber, on va être en retard. billets
0: Oui, go. bah ça attendra. On doit y être à 9h. Les enfants, dépêchez-vous. Oh, I'm mad. uh... So that brings us to our listener's choice section. Now, we had to make a judgment call on our latest listener's choice poll. The options we gave you were Insidious Chapter 2, David Gordon Green's new film Joe, and The Past from Iranian filmmaker Asghar Farhadi. Joe and The Past were neck and neck the entire week. Uh, I happened to be at a screening when the poll closed and Matt, you were also, uh, you also checked that morning. We I checked saw... it about an hour before was the last time I could check it. Right. And... and the past was in the lead. Right. Um, but by the afternoon, Joe was winning. So we but it was get... only
1: by, like, three votes. I mean, yeah, it, was it was unbelievably very, very close. close.
0: So we had to get a little interpretive with the democratic process. And we decided to go with the past, in part because, as listener Christopher pointed out, while Joe is almost certainly a film worth seeing and talking about, I am not sure it should be an option here, at least at this point, not because it is undeserving, but because it has been talked about already for two weeks on film spotting Original Recipe. So to avoid a direct uh, overlap with our mothership podcast Mm. we're going to go with the past which may have won anyway we don't know we apologize for not being present when the poll was supposed to close um so starts our path down the slippery slope towards brutal podcast dictatorship But in the meantime, The Past, which is available for rent from the usual outlets, is the sixth film from Asghar Fahadi, and it is his follow-up to A Separation, which won the Best Foreign Language Film Oscar in 2011. And The Past feels, in some ways, like a companion piece to A Separation. Uh, A Separation was about an ending marriage and the possibility of leaving Iran, the Past is about a marriage that's already like long done and features a character who's left Iran but has since returned, uh, and so it's kind of furthered along this road of two people who have parted. It stars Ali Mosafa as Ahmad, who returns from Iran to France after four years to finalize his divorce with Marie, who's played by Berenice Bejo of The Artist. Marie has become involved with a man named Samir, played by Tahar Rahim, who was uh, in the great film, A Prophet. He owns a dry cleaner across the street from the pharmacy at which Marie works. Marie and Ahmad never had children, but she has two children from her first marriage, the teenage Lucy and the younger Leah. And Samir has a child of his own, a young son named Fuad. He also, uh, more problematically for them, has a wife who's in a coma after an unsuccessful suicide attempt. Now, the past is a domestic drama, but it's also sort of a mystery in which the incident being re-examined, the wife's suicide attempt and what caused it, seems to become muddier the more that they find, the more information they find out about it. There's, they're kind of looking for closure and it does not come along easily. Um, the film is also, I think, proof that Farhadi has just one of the best filmmakers working today. I, I thought this film was terrific and I'm, I'm very curious about why it didn't receive more attention. So I guess that's my question for you, Matt. Uh, what do you like do you agree that this this film is a strong one and and why do you think that it landed without making much of an impact?
1: I do think it's a strong film and it's something I've wondered about too, why it didn't get more attention last year. <sighs> it's it, it, it could be it's tough, right? Because how do you determine that because there's so many good movies at the end of the year. And then there's some movies that are not so good but they get a lot of attention. Either it's because of a flashy performance, which this movie doesn't really have. It has good performances, but not flashy performances. No one is gaining or losing weight, no one is dying of anything particular. You know, it's not, it doesn't have any of the trappings of a important performance. Um and it's it's from Sony Classics, who is, you know, it's certainly a, it's a, a part of a large distributor, but you know, not the most uh, you know they don't. They're not really known for uh, mounting huge Oscar campaigns, um, so I don't know. I think maybe it suffered from just, you know, he got a lot of acclaim for his last film, the *Separation*, and rightly so. And this movie is similar in some ways, as you pointed out. It, 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 it you know, treads similar territory. So perhaps it felt a little familiar to some people. I mean it's 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 certainly not a remake and it doesn't even really follow the same storyline it's really just the same sort of milieu you know just a domestic drama with you know uh kind of this as you said muddy unclear uh situation where people are sort of trying to point fingers and and determine who is at fault and kind of assuage their own guilt um that was certainly in a separation as well and that's very uh, present in the past no pun intended but they're very different movies in terms of what happens. And, you know, this one is in French. <laughs> I
0: wonder if that is also something that in some ways it's more straightforward to put this film that's from an Iranian filmmaker about Iran. Mm. And then, you know, there seems to be this kind of easy. It's easier to describe easier. It, it, cause it seems to represent Iran. You you're know, saying a separation. Iran, a separation. It? Yeah. Yes. And I that, see what like, you're saying. Traveling. It creates more of this sense of cultural confusion as much as like I, I feel like it presents this very interesting vision of suburban France sure. and also like immigrant France that I don't think you see very often.
1: I, I think another way to look at it would be to say that a separation had a hook, essentially, right? It was showing us something we haven't seen a lot of, which was sort of like the inner workings of... Iran and, and, and...
0: the class system. The class and system and
1: also like the judicial system. Yeah. Like, the way the courts work in that film is fascinating. And it's not something I knew anything about, and, and I uh, presume a lot of people watching this, in a, especially in America, had no idea about. And so you have a really interesting domestic drama, one. But then the hook is, but it t- all takes place in Iran, and you don't really know this stuff, and you're learning all these kind of fascinating details about their their lives and their system and their way of government. And so that was all kind of maybe an extra hook to get people in the theater or when you're, you know, when you're just telling someone word of mouth wise, this movie doesn't have any of that. You know, it doesn't really have any kind of like, Oh, you're going to see what, you know, the judicial system in France is like, well, you don't see it at all. And even if you did, you probably wouldn't be that interested because it's not all that interesting or different or exciting. So maybe that was another reason. Uh, But I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I've wondered about it too. I think it's just all these reasons that we've said, it just, you know, it's, it doesn't have the kind of things to make it stand out in a in a uh, in an Oscar campaign, an Oscar season when there's so many movies vying for attention.
0: Yeah. It does I, I feel like something that it does so well that mm. I really and I I noticed this in a separation as well, is that it allows uh, without having any overt um, exposition or yes. characters delivering that, allows information about characters to be revealed so well. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I feel like by halfway through the film, as it is introduced, these multiple, you know, like two exes, children from different marriages, uh, secrets, and all of that, that you could kind of explain how each pairing of characters felt about one another, and in a way that I, I thought was so unusual mm-hmm. for a film, you know, without having to kind of be like here and here's what's happened. Uh, it, it kind of allows information to leak out so elegantly.
1: Yes, I would I would agree with that. And I would say also what I felt even more and I had seen the film once before. This was the second time I watched it was, you know, now that I was knew exactly what was going to happen in terms of the story and and paying just a little bit less attention to that. I was really just kind of struck by similar to what you're saying, how well he communicates those kind of ideas and that information visually. And it's not the kind of like, you know, fancy schmancy, uh, you know, incredibly wild shots. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is just smart use of camera and imagery. You know, the opening shot of this movie is is the husband character returning to France, the, the soon-to-be ex-wife waiting for him at the airport and they're separated by this glass wall and like they're kind of talking to one another or trying to communicate but they can't communicate through this barrier and they literally haven't said anything to one another that we can hear because it's through this glass wall but without any dialogue at all we immediately understand some of this relationship and we get in this one very simple but very effective image this couple is divided they're they're being you know they're split up by this invisible but very present barrier that is somehow keeping them apart and it's preventing communication, essentially.
0: Yeah. And that image of like people kind of being separated by glass. Comes is, up over yeah, and over. Yeah, it's a recurring one with yes. the film. Right through the kind of final image. The which final shot really, of the film
1: is similar. Yeah. yeah.
0: And very, and beautiful. Very powerful. Yeah, it's yes. very powerful. And yeah, and they're not
1: even just, uh, you know, there's a lot of windows in general in the film and, and like looking at people from one side of a, of a glass window so you can't hear them on the other side. But there's also things like – I was watching it this time. I was even like, you know, because the uh, Tahar Rahim character, the sort of the new guy that she wants, that Bernice Bejo wants to marry, um, he works at a dry cleaning business, which involves a lot of plastic, clear plastic, and covering clothes in these like bags and semi-permeable like permeable bags and stuff. And again, a similar image of like you know seeing someone but still being separated from them somehow by plastic, by glass, whatever it is. And I thought – Again, another choice that kind of connects those two things just beautifully. And and, you know, he could have been any job at all, but he, you know, I mean, the, the the job eventually comes into play in the plot. But I think I really wonder if that was part of it. Is he loved that image because he's introduced actually that character is introduced from behind, like the stand where they put the plastic over the clothes. He's like behind it and then he kind of steps out from in front of and in, into in front of it. And just the way he's introduced that way, similar to the the other character, Ahmad, being introduced f- behind glass, I was like, there's it's, it's 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 can't be a coincidence. It's definitely the work of a deliberate and very intelligent visual filmmaker.
0: Yeah, and without ever, as you said, being flashy, like there is nothing about this film that is flashy, no. which you know, maybe to its detriment in terms of like alluring audiences. Maybe but I think it is so subtly well made. It's yes, it's kind of amazing.
1: But it, but again, there's it, and again, it's like what you were saying. It's they, he's able to communicate all these ideas visually. Without saying them, he just finds these things, and he. But he doesn't make them so heavy-handed that you're. Oh my God, he's doing this right. again. He's oh, doing... the bird stands
0: for this. There's right. never any moment of like overt sim- right. symbolism in that. But way,
1: just things like there's a there's a, a, a. It actually comes up more than once. There's a, a scene that involves the the faucet, the sink in the kitchen, which is like stopped up, it's clogged, and a mod fixes it, and gets rid of the clog, and then all of a sudden the war- water is pouring out. And where this is in the film is sort of at this point where all the characters have kind of been like stopped up and like kind of burying their feelings. And this is right at the point where everything is about to come rushing out. And it's sort of this idea that now that Ahmad has arrived and people are talking about the situation involving the wife and the coma and the child and all this sort of stuff, that now everything is coming rushing out. And again, it, it, they don't make a big deal out of it. It, it almost seems like just a piece of business that's going on in this scene, but you really realize that nothing is, is like that in this movie. There are moments you know, littered throughout it where he is doing that to this very purpose, and it's really brilliant. There's another great one involving a band-aid. I don't know if you caught that, but near the end of the film, um, there's a scene between Tahar Rahim's character and his son – uh, and he's like the son is in the bathtub and they're talking and this is after another big emotional moment in the film and he pulls off a band-aid that was – that the son got earlier in the film after he cut his finger and it's almost this idea of like the wound has healed kind of a thing. And just, just like – again, they don't dwell on it. They don't – there's no close-up. But it's there. And it's that stuff that really makes this movie really lovely.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, and the house itself. Marie has this house that's in the middle of being renovated. And there's that whole idea of all of these relationships that are kind of stuck in this halfway point. Even the house itself that they're living in is like... It needs, repair, if it, it needs it's repair. It needs Being transformed, you know, it's not go- it's not the home it's going to be, right? Eventually, it's kind of up in the air. It's this transitional place, and that fits so well with these multiple themes of relationships that are kind of caught. You have obviously this this former relationship with Ahmad that he's coming to provide clo- like official closure for, mm-hmm. but provides in the end uh, no real kind of emotional closure for, you know, and the film suggests in a very nice way that, like, looking for that kind of closure is not... is maybe a kind of foolhardy process. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you have the relationship uh, with Samir in which the wife is, like, a literal symbol of, like, his past relationship that, like, you know, in... in, if she were alive, that he could have left her. If she were dead... Then, he could you could just know, move on, you could move on. But instead she's caught in right. this point between life and death. And they are like literally just suspended, like mm. not really, e- you know, like even, e- even if they were to get married or want to get married, they might not be able to, because right. his wife is, is still alive. And in this coma. and, and the film deals with these themes so well without ever kind of leaning on them mm. uh, in a way that I thought was amazing. Uh, what did you think of the child actors here? I thought Fuad, was particularly amazing he, he was, was fantastic right before. yeah he hadn't was... acted before yeah, he only has one credit he's mm. remarkable like to a point where you you forget that he's an actor
1: yeah I agree I mean he actually have him in my notes as I just have a little note saying the boy who played Fouad was fantastic and he is he's incredible I mean it's one of those child performances that like you said you, it doesn't feel like a performance at all it really feels like it's like a documentary or something. It just feels like this, uh, that they've captured a little little piece of this little kid's life. And yeah, I don't know who he is, where he's from, what his real life is like, where he drew this performance from, how like, they drew it out and, of and him. that's
0: like it. There's a scene really early on when Ahmad first arrives where he basically throws a tantrum. Mm. And just watching it, I wonder, like, how do you direct that? Because right. it's like a real child tantrum of like a violent one, you know? Mm. And like, it's just like, how do you end up, capturing that and instructing a kid in that it's amazing and, it's and really having it feel genuine and and, yeah.
1: and he does some really subtle stuff too it's not just all yelling i mean there's a lot of scenes where it's a lot about his body language and him looking down at the ground and feeling ashamed of what he's done there's a lot of times where his father is telling him to look at someone or you know put shoving his head up with it you know kind of nudging him and stuff and just all of that little that little subtle work is incredible too i mean yeah he's this incredible young actor and you go where did this kid come from and what an incredible performance he gives. It really, it might be the best in the entire movie, I actually. And, and there are some
0: very strong ones, but like he is something else. Yeah. really, it stands out. Yeah.
1: Any other, any other things we haven't touched on?
0: No, I think other than that, I really, I recommend this film highly. It's, it's a pretty great one. Uh, and it's, did you like it more than a Separation? No, no. I, I, a Separation, I think, is going to be one of the best movies of this decade, mm. uh, and it was one I, I adored. But like, um, I, I think this one is a slightly tougher sell in terms of it, it describing it, right? And I, I, I think it is really worth looking up.
1: All right, so for people who haven't had a chance to see it yet, there you go. That's that's your uh, recommendation. Give it if it seems a little dry or it doesn't seem as enticing. It's worth a look. A
0: separation was uh, something. If you described it, that said, "Wow, that sounds sexy." (laughs) Like you know, two people try and get a divorce while trying to figure out what to do with one of their aging parents. In Iran,
1: (laughs) I'm sold. Here's my fifteen (laughs) dollars. No, I understand what you're saying. It 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 it's 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 but it's a good movie. So people should check it out. That's the past, and it's available now for rent on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, all over the place.
0: And that brings us to our Behind the Eight Ball section, where every episode we bring you three picks that are new to streaming, two that are recommended by our listeners, and one that was randomly chosen from our Netflix My List. Matt, you're up first. Are you ready?
1: Yes. All right. Three new picks. Okay. First up, uh, if you're looking to set the mood for the new Godzilla movie that's coming out in a few weeks, you should check out a bunch of Godzilla movies that were just added to Netflix. There's a whole slew of old Toho Godzilla movies that are on there now. Uh, you can watch Godzilla, King of the Monsters. There's Godzilla Raids again, Godzilla vs. Monster Zero, and Godzilla's Revenge. Uh, Allison, Godzilla's Revenge, that's a really interesting one. That's the one where – have you seen that one? I have not. Godzilla, he goes on a rampage. What happens is like these people kill his wife, Rachel Godzilla, and then he swears revenge. <laughs> uh, he's like a, He's like a liberal guy who never thought he would – it's really good. You should check it out, fantastic. Yeah. The one that I'm going to recommend besides that one is called Godzilla vs. Mothra. And in this one, a troublemaking Godzilla returns to wreak more havoc around Tokyo. And meanwhile, a couple of brave journalists, they travel to an island populated by Mothra worshipers to recruit the giant insect to defend Japan from the, uh, the giant dinosaur. First third's a little bit sluggish. But I enjoyed how hallucinogenic this one is. There are these two tiny twin women who wear a lot of egg-related clothing and sing to Mothra. Uh, There are giant Mothra larvae that shoot, like, webs out of their mouths. It's very weird-looking. And the fights are really good. And I even like like the Godzilla suit in this one. They gave Godzilla these like angry, furrowed eyebrows so he looks like a total a-hole. <laughs> it's really, really fun. So that's Godzilla versus Mothra available on Netflix. And again, if you're looking for more Godzilla action, that's all up on Netflix now. So take a look. My second pick is a uh, another classic, almost as classic as Godzilla vs. Mothra. It's the Frank Capra film Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And this is something I was uh, actually excited to see pop up because I'm going to be writing about the film in a few weeks for The Dissolve. It's going to be a movie of the week uh, on the website. We do that every week. We pick a classic film and talk about it. And my next pick was Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which I got the disc of. But as luck would have it, it was just added to Netflix. And this is a fascinating film with James Stewart as Jefferson Smith. He's a idealistic, like, Boy Scout leader. He's chosen to replace this senator who's died because the assumption is because he's this idealistic, naive guy, he'll be easily controllable. And Gene uh, Arthur is the co-star. She plays his uh, secretary. He's very cynical, but she kind of falls in love with his idealism as she helps him navigate the Senate. And it's a fascinating film. I, know, I remember what really made me interested to go back and watch this was watching the second season of House of Cards. And I can't remember if we discussed this in our discussion of it, but there's an episode of House of Cards in the second season that kind of plays like the evil version of Mr. Smith Goes uh-huh. to Washington where – The character played by Kevin Spacey is in the Senate kind of doing uh, all these kind of machinations. And it almost – I found it fascinating to compare that to Mr. Smith. So if you've seen House of Cards, if you enjoyed that episode I'm talking about, or even if you haven't, it's an interesting time to go back – And look at Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, now available on Netflix. And finally, another one on Netflix. This is a movie I haven't revisited, but when I saw that it popped up, it made me go, God, I enjoyed this movie a long time ago, and I haven't seen it in so long, and I need to revisit it. So I added it to my buy list, and I'm looking forward to a day when I don't have much to do and I can take a look at it again. It's Sneakers. Sneakers. The 1992 heist film uh, with one of the all-time great casts, Robert Redford, Dan Aykroyd, Ben Kingsley, Mary McDonald, River Phoenix, Sidney Poitier, and David Strathairn. It's about a bunch of computer experts. They're recruited by the NSA to snag this MacGuffin and yada, yada, yada. I don't, I don't really want to spoil any of the twists or what happens, but it's a really fun movie. Good performances, great twisty plot. And uh, I'm I, I do you like sneakers? I feel like it's a movie that didn't really do much at the time, but it's kind of slowly people realize like over time it's taken on this reputation as just a very entertaining movie.
0: Yeah, I mean, I do. But it's been so long since I've seen yeah, it. It's so. been at
1: least a decade since yeah. I saw it. So I'm looking forward to revisiting oh, that's it. That's
0: one that I've added to your as well. you my, my, my list. Yes. Yes.
1: All right. So that sneaker is available on Netflix.
0: All right, two listener recommendations.
1: Okay, my first one here is from Jill M. She says, we've been watching The Rockford Files. It's probably more fun if you're old like me and can remember crappy old Los Angeles, but still very fun. Uh, I've never watched The Rockford Files, Allison. I have not either. And it was James Garner. And I believe he plays a guy named Rockford Files, and he is the Rockford Files. And no, I think he's a detective, and he's named Rockford, and there's Files somehow. But uh, it's supposed to be a, a good, uh, you know, classic TV show. But I've just never watched it. I saw that it popped up on Netflix recently, and was going, "Oh, I should watch some of that. I bet I would. I would dig it." So, on Jill's recommendation, I have added that to my my list as well. Uh, our next recommendation is another one from we've been getting some from like internationally, more internationally lately than nationally, frankly, which is really cool. We have this one is from a listener named Mitchell in Wellington, New Zealand. We're we're really big in New Zealand now, Allison. I love it. I love it, too. Yeah. So this uh, letter begins, Dear Allison and Matt and fellow, fellow Sfoovers. I was overjoyed to hear that you would be reviewing the Alan Partridge movie, as well as providing some recommendations on British comedy, also having just rewatched the Office Christmas specials and a few episodes of Knowing Me Knowing You this week. Your podcast could not have been better timed. However, my joy was replaced by cringing embarrassment (laughs) when one of your first recommendations was the Carry On films. Please, 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 film spotting listeners, carry on listening to film spotting, but avoid these films like The Plague. They are as representative of the quality of British comedy as Everybody Loves Raymond is to American comedy.
0: I liked it. What uh, well, did I say? I enjoyed it. I, I watched it. I Also, liked it. I hate to tell you, but Everybody Loves Raymond it was a hugely successful show. Yeah. So we can't shrug it off.
1: Yes. Uh, living in New Zealand, uh, Mitchell writes, we are blessed with the option of choosing between some of the best viewing options in the U.S. and the U.K. and our neighbors, the Australians. Also, our content, like Flight of the Concords isn't too shabby, too. I thought I'd recommend some other British comedies that aim higher than the carry-on catalog, all of which are available on Hulu. Uh, and I looked to see where these were available in the U.S. So here's, very quickly, uh, Mitchell's recommendations. Spaced. If you enjoy the Cornetto trilogy, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and The World's End, then Space is absolutely essential viewing, starring Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, under the direction of Edgar Wright. That is indeed available on Hulu Plus. Peep Show, filmed using a first-person POV. The best feature of this show is the hilariously awkward internal dialogue that underscores the actions of the two main characters, Jeremy and Mark, possibly the most neurotic character ever created for television. That's available on Netflix and Hulu Plus, both in the U.S. And finally, uh, Mitchell writes, I'd also recommend Derek, Ricky Gervais's Far Superior follow-up to Life's Too Short. And that is also available on Netflix. I haven't watched that one yet.
0: I will say, Mitchell, I like your first two recommendations a lot. oh love, love Spaced. Um, love Peep Show. I will, I'm will. i not with you on Derek. Oh. I, I really do. Carry on Derek. not watching Derek. <laughs>
1: all right. Um,
0: it's coming back for a second season, though. Okay. Yes, on, well. That, I think, is going to be on Netflix. That's so. all
1: right. We can we can have some differences here. But nonetheless, those are the recommendations here. Space Peep Show and Derek uh, on Hulu Plus. Netflix and Hulu Plus and Netflix, respectively. And that was all from Mitchell in Wellington, New Zealand. Thank you for the
0: email. Yes, thank you. All right, one from your My List.
1: Okay, you gave me number 11, which this time is Simon Killer. This is the film directed by Antonio Campos, who made the film, I believe, After School. Yes. Which I thought was an excellent film. Yes, it was. And I have not had a chance to watch this one. This was his follow-up to it. Didn't get as good reviews as After School. Haven't had a chance to catch up with it but i have it on my my list and the description from netflix is young and heartbroken a new yorker travels to paris to escape his romantic woes but is soon drawn into another all-consuming attraction and the star is brady corbett who i i think i know best from the us version of for, of uh funny games right isn't he in that yes yes i was right so yeah so i know him from that he's a good actor actually and i'm 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 i definitely am interested in checking it out i just missed it the first time around and it wound up on the list and hopefully i'll get the chance to Watch that sometime in the, in the near future. Allison, are you ready for your uh, list, your
0: countdown? I am ready. All right,
1: three new titles.
0: Okay, first up is a, a film that was given the unfortunate title of Karaoke Terror in the U.S. It is currently streaming on Hulu. The Japanese title, I think, as far as it's translated, is a little better. The Complete Japanese Showa Songbook uh, it's directed by Tetsuya Shinohara, and it's the story of an escalatingly and eventually absurdly violent war between two groups of karaoke lovers. I'm intrigued. Yes, I'm one, officially intrigued. One is a, a group of disaffected. Um, kind of bored 20-something guys who live for these elaborate... Both of these groups sing sh- like kind of 60s, 70s schmaltzy songs from Japan, the show-up period. Is hitting a very deep yes. chord in me and already. So the 20-something guys and this group of older divorcees who are all named Midori. So they're the Midoris. And after one one from one group kills the other, they begin to fall into this war And uh, it's a really dark comedy and eventually a really absurd one. But uh, if you love karaoke and you love people violently killing each other, this is the film for you. It is currently streaming on Hulu. Crap. I got to see this. Also new to Hulu is Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. This is Nagisa Oshima's very strange and really interesting 1983 film about prisoners of war starring David Bowie as Major Jack Selliers and Ryuchi Sakamoto as Captain Yonoi, who is the Japanese commander of the camp in which he's stationed and who becomes kind of fixated on him. It's a story about kind of clashing cultures and failures of communication and kind of different ideas of masculinity and heroism, and also possibly repressed homoerotic fixation. And also Takeshi Kitano is in it, playing the kind of role he plays so well, which is a guy who's kind of cheery and also capable of horrific violence. And, uh, you know, Oshima, of course, did In the Realm of the Senses. And this film also has like a bit of that, that really dark line between i would say like affection and love and cruelty in it uh, all in this world war ii setting merry christmas mr lawrence currently streaming on hulu and finally new to netflix maximum overdrive 1986 film that is stephen king's lone directorial effort based on his own short story trucks you could be generous and call it a curiosity it was um you have seen it? I've seen some of it. It's You've really, seen some of it. It's not it's not a good film, but it's definitely unique uh, and uh, Stephen King himself in an interview book said that he was coked out of his mind throughout this production <laughs> for what it's worth I also highly recommend the trailer, the trailer yeah. featuring King yeah. which is on YouTube I've and never seen the movie but right the trailer
1: now. is amazing and it's it's actually features Stephen yes, King he is maybe good, he was coked out of his mind
0: looking, it's certainly believable that right. he was, when right. you watch
1: this trailer right, he's talking directly to the camera and vowing to scare you with his movie yes. maybe we'll play a clip of it right here I right. My name is Stephen King. I've written several motion pictures, but I want to tell you about a movie called Maximum Overdrive, which is the first one I've directed. Wow! What in the dick is going on around here? A lot of people have directed Stephen King novels and stories, and I finally decided if you want something done right, you ought to do it yourself. Who was driving it? I don't know. Curtis, it's coming after us! It was my first picture as a director. And you know something? I sort of enjoyed it.
0: Okay. There you yeah. go. Yes. I'm terrified right now. Soundtrack by AC/DC, starring Emilio Estevez, in a story about how all of our machines and electronics come to life and try to kill us, including automobiles, but also killer soda machines and arcade games. How can you some turn scary that? stuff, how guys? Can you turn that down. Maximum Overdrive currently streaming on Netflix.
1: Cocaine is a hell of a drug. <laughs> all right, uh, how about? Two listener recommendations.
0: All right. First up is a recommendation from Genevieve, who writes, I just wanted to recommend The Hour, an underseen British TV series, which is written by Abby Morgan, who wrote Shame, The Invisible Woman, and The Iron Lady. It centers around the production of a fictional BBC news program called The Hour in the 1950s. The protagonist, Belle Rowley, played by Romola Garay, is a young woman and when she is placed in charge of this news program it ruffles some feathers she has to juggle demands from her bosses as well as the staff working on the news program when this series premiered in 2011 it was compared to Mad Men because of the time period however I think it's quite a different beast by its tone rhythm and focus on British politics the first season also has an important spy thriller element to it though I like the second season even more which toned down that thriller element and spent more time focused on its core characters it's really those characters and their relationship that I found fascinating the acting is fabulous. In addition to Garay, the cast is comprised of Ben Wishaw, Dominic West, Anna Chancellor, and Peter Capaldi joined in the second season, and he's fantastic. Quite easy to catch up on the show since there are only two seasons of six episodes each. And sadly, for those of us who loved it, there will not be a third season since it was canceled by the BBC a few months ago. Still, it's absolutely worth the watch. In Canada, it's streaming on Netflix and available for purchase in iTunes. I should note that in the U.S., it is available on Amazon Prime Instant Video. Um, And she also writes, it's worth tracking down in HD because the cinematography is beautiful. So that is the hour, which you can find in the U.S. on Amazon Prime Instant Video. And we have a recommendation from Lauren, who writes, Last night I scrolled through Netflix for the millionth time. I stumbled upon the documentary Milius about the infamous writer and director. Obviously, I'd heard of John Milius and his resume, Apocalypse Now, Conan the Barbarian, Red Dawn. But I really didn't know much beyond that. I found the documentary incredibly compelling. It's really something to watch revered directors like Spielberg, Coppola, Scorsese, and Lucas, who all came up with Milius, talk about him. It's always fascinating to see directors you love discuss something or someone they're really fond of. I had heard the story of how Milius turned a turned in a ten-page monologue about the USS Indianapolis into a stuck Spielberg while he was working on Jaws. And while that story is a testament to his great talent as a writer, and as Spielberg puts it in the doc, A Rock on Tour, it's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to mythic, many of which are not necessarily complimentary in Milius tales. Overall, I'd say it's a must-see for any, fi- any film fan, and while the doc is populated largely by colleagues who love and respect John Milius, it doesn't always shy away from showing the more troubling aspects of his personality that made it hard for him to blaze a trail the way his contemporaries did. It's a highly engaging documentary worth watching for sure. So there you go. That is on Netflix.
1: That's a good one. I've I've seen that movie. It's definitely uh, that's a good pick.
0: Okay, and one film from your my list. You gave me number thirty-two, which is actually a film I added on your recommendation. It's in the house, Mm. the Francois Ozon film starring Kristen Scott Thomas, uh, which you said was great and a very appreciated film. And why is it so
1: far down there, Allison? Because
0: when you add new ones, it bumps them down.
1: Should be way higher. Well, I'm I, of you. Uh, How dare you?
0: Uh, yeah. It's I like spitting again. on my recommendation. All I, do, all I do this time is apologize. Why don't you just take I'm my sorry, recommendation,
1: world. crumple it up, and throw it right in the sorry, trash? Why don't you world. just do that? Huh? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. All right. Well, should we get to our picks for our next episode or our listener's let's, choice options? Let's please. Well, we, uh, you, Allison, found a few. 80s movies that were newly added and you thought that that would uh, make for an interesting uh, theme for our next episode, at least for the listener's choice options, 80s movies. So I think you have the first one here. What is it?
0: Yeah, so I tried to do a mix of I feel like out of all of these, maybe one is the one that's more looked at for nostalgic reasons than it is for as a film itself. Mm -hmm. But the first two, I think, are kind of standalone. Uh, The first one is The Big Chill, which is new to Netflix. It's Lawrence Kasdan's 1983 dramedy about a group of college friends, uh, among them Glenn Close, Jeff Goldblum, William Hurt, Kevin Kline, and Joe Beth Williams who reunite after the suicide of one of their friends. And what I think is so interesting about this is that the big chill format is becoming one that people try and revisit and remake. You know, this was tried to be a film about a generation about like this baby boomer generation. And that already this year, there have been two films that have tried to be the big chill of our moment. Uh, One goodbye world, which kind of combined the big chill with the possible apocalypse. And there's one at the Tribeca Film Festival called About Alex that involved a lot of TV stars, including including Aubrey Plaza and um, Schmidt from uh, New Girl and others as in the exact same format, basically, except that the main character or the character who is in the title did not... uh, die in a suicide attempt he survived and they all come to visit him but uh the fact that this has become something that people revisit to try and encapsulate the way we live now i think makes looking back at this one worth doing
1: uh, yeah absolutely and it's uh, going to be a criterion collection film in a few months i did not
0: know that yes well, it was, was recently
1: selected it's not out yet yeah i'm not sure which month the, the blu-ray comes out but yes just selected it was like their last wave of announcements that was one of the titles, the big, the big chill. So it's a it's a modern classic now, Allison. There you so, go.
0: Criterion says so. so yes, got it
1: exactly. So that would be uh, that would be interesting. I've never seen that movie, and uh, would I, for all the reasons you said and I said, I definitely would be interested in checking that one out. Our next option, also available on Netflix. This one I have seen a couple times. It's called Say Anything, and uh, the reason we thought to do this one, besides the 80s thing, is that this film just recently celebrated its 25th anniversary. So it's, an, it's a good time to look back at this iconic teen romance from 1989, written and directed by Cameron Crowe, of course, starring John Cusack and Ioni Skye. And really, how often, Alison, do we have the chance to review a movie while we both hold boomboxes in the air? I better
0: start working out, though. That's a lot of time to be holding 20 minutes holding it in the
1: air? You don't think you could do it?
0: I I just really don't have a lot of upper body strength.
1: I think if Peter (laughs) Gabriel was egging you on, you'd find a way. I hope so. He has a way of inspiring people. So, yeah, that's uh, option number two, Say Anything, available on Netflix.
0: And finally, and these are all on Netflix, uh, this last one is also new to Netflix, St. Elmo's Fire, which I would say of the three is probably the one that, as I said, is most awesome. an, artifact, oh, oh, oh. an artifact of its moment. Also, okay. we've had Say Anything is high school. The Big Chill is, like, years after college. St. Elmo's Fire is directly after college. No, we're covering our bases. Yeah, it's about a group of recent graduates from Georgetown University who are kind of doing the thing that even in the 80s people did after graduating, which is to kind of wander around, not really sure how to start their adult lives, and has the most Brat Packy of Brat Pack casts, including Emilio Estevez, Rob Lowe, Andrew McCarthy, Demi Moore, Judd Nelson, Ali Sheedy, and Mayor Winningham amazing uh, and also directed by joel schumacher which i did not remember <laughs> but uh, it's, a, it's a 1985 film peak could be 80s and uh, certainly r- regardless of whether it holds up i think it's probably interesting as a look at the 80s the real the 80s 80s Dun, dun, dun. Oh,
1: you're done? Okay, sorry. Okay, so, which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to SVU at com, or you can enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at FilmSpottingSVU.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, May 12th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on our Twitter account, at FilmSpottingSVU, and you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on our next episode on
0: or around Tuesday, May 20th. FilmspottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies and TV shows we discuss on the show. The Filmspotting SVU Remixed theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.com. And we'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the review that you pick. And in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from you, the SVU listeners. For SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore.
1: And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>